the CU 2.0 podcast. What we wanted to do was prove that it worked because nobody's doing this right now. And so to me, it was important to find out, do the members or the clients like it? Do the attorneys like it? You know, is there an actual model, a financial model that works here? Joseph Cooper calls it the justice gap. What he is pinpointing is the avalanche of unfiled lawsuits and the unpursued legal matters that the middle class often just lets go untended. The rich pay lawyers. They have the bucks. They can afford to do it. The poor, in many cases, can access free legal assistance. It's the middle class that's out in the cold. Who are credit union members, by the way? Enter Cooper's Justice for Me, where he is creating a system that helps attorneys find clients, helps those clients borrow money to pay for their legal assistance, and just may also help credit unions add a powerful new loan product to their portfolio. Welcome to the CU 2.0 podcast. This is your host, Robert McGarvey. Today's guest, Joseph Cooper of Justice For Me. Wake up, smell a vanishing auto loan. Your loan portfolio will be changing. Legal loans just may be a great new product. They also may be a product that align well with the core credit union mission of helping the middle class. Justice for me avoids most criminal law, will not do contingency fee cases, that's personal injury and such like, but there are many, many, many other matters such as wills, adoptions, divorces, contract law, bill disputes, much more. Lawyers need the work. We are over-lawyered as a society, but they also want to be paid. Enter justice for me. Win, win, win. It's a novel idea. It's worth a listen. This is the CU 2.0 podcast. Listen up. Let's talk about justice for me. Tell me what it is and what's in it for credit unions. So in justice for me, you know, we're working to remove the financial obstacles that prevent clients or members and attorneys from connecting um, to solve all sorts of issues as well as help, you know, wills and estates and any adoption proactive stuff as well. When we, when I started to understand this issue of the justice gap, it, it, it came to light because, you know, we were working with the legal aid office up in Austin and they turned away 11,000 people in the first quarter of 2017 because they made too much money and didn't qualify for legal aid. And so exploring more, this, this issue of the justice gap came up and that's described as if you think about it, if you're rich, you can get any attorney you want. And if you're at the poverty level or sometimes two, three times the poverty level, then legal aid or other pro bono services are available. If you're in the middle, uh, as most members are, uh, if you needed help from an attorney and you walked into their office, they'd say, love to help you, but I need a four dollars to $5,000 retainer. And the reality is that most people just don't have four or $5,000 lying around in that sort of emergency or even if it's a you know, proactive investment such as a, a will. And so at Justice For Me, what we do is we came up with a business model whereby we have put together a network of attorneys that will get paid directly by us, less a service fee, um, to work with the clients that we are taking the credit risk for. So, if you, so what happens right now is we've got a network of attorneys and we're primarily in Texas right now, but we're working with credit unions all over the country in order to deploy and to get out uh, more nationwide. 
but if they once a client and attorney want to work together and that's whether the client finds the attorney through our website which about 50 percent do or the the attorney sends them to us once they agree to engage there's a credit process that takes place right now uh, through our loan origination system and then we will assuming that they're approved you know uh, grant them a line of credit to work with that attorney for the full engagement amount so the credit, the attorney, there's no money advanced. Um, there's a line of credit that the, that the attorney knows they're going to get be able to draw against to get paid. Whose money is that? So right now, right now, it is our money. It is Justice for Me's money. The loans right now are on the uh, Justice for Me books. And I'm going to describe this because we're in this transition stage to move those loans from our books to the credit unions because what the credit unions want to do is be able to support that lending given their own decisioning, their own servicing, and their own collecting. What we wanted to do was prove that it worked because nobody's doing this right now. Um, and so to me, it was important to find out, do the members or the clients like it? Uh, do the attorneys like it? You know, is there an actual model, a financial model that works here? And so we're at that stage now where the answer is absolutely yes to that. We have over, you know, done over a hundred lines. We've been doing this for, you know, a little over a year now. Our delinquency rates less than 2%. And, you know, we've got some great numbers to go talk about. So what happens is once an attorney sends us an invoice, we pay that invoice directly. That's a service fee. And that's where we make our money. And then on, then the full amount of that is placed on the client's line of credit. And then right now, the terms that they pay back are 18 months at a 10% interest. However, uniquely, um, what we'll do is if they make all their payments on time and pay it off in less than 12 months, we will refund them all that interest so it's interest-free to them. So... In this model, which was working out very well, it became obvious to me that the demographics of the folks that we're talking about match the demographics of the member bases extremely well. Um, and to me, even more importantly, because of my background in the credit union space, I knew that the mission of people helping people really tied in with what we're trying to do here. And so I started talking to some credit unions um, who I had known before, and they said, you know, this sounds very intriguing and very interesting because one of the things that we want to be able to do by, is not only serve our members by helping them get access to justice, but we also need, we would love a source of new members coming in and you know, a new uh, arena for loan growth that would be at a higher margin level, um, you know, but certainly decisioned by the credit unions that they could use to grow their loan portfolios and you know help more people out at the same time so that is where um, the credit unions have come in um, we have a credit union over in houston that actually invested in our seed round so we are you know considered a qso um, and we've got credit unions around the country that we're looking to put together more uh, traditional sorts of qso arrangements there's one in san diego that hopefully we'll get something going um, the first quarter of next year, we're in the final stages of putting that together, where we can go out um, and set up the entity so that we can market to uh, the community, um, as well as generate loans for the credit union 
in a, you know, a thoughtful, appropriate way, um, but then also help bridge this justice gap. And, you know, the gap is huge. Um, of the attorneys we talk to, you know, they're turning away 30 to 40% of everyone who they would take because they don't have the retainer. And attorneys just can't take the credit and collections risk. So attorneys that are on our network are seeing their business go up 50% because they are now able to serve those folks. This is a time when there's a surplus of attorneys. So that's good. That, that means that they'll be a little bit more flexible, I should think. Absolutely. And, you know, this, this, um, when I look at the problem of the justice gap, it really, is, I look at it from an economic and econometric standpoint, because you say there's a surplus of attorneys, and, and there is a bit of a surplus of attorneys, but a lot of the ones who can do the work, you know, at a reasonable cost, have no way for clients to find them, and then certainly are not in a position to be able to finance that. I'm not. I'm not saying that they they line up on street corners with with cardboard <laughs> signs, but it's just technically this is a tough time for an, a young attorney to make a living. Absolutely, and you know when you look at our you know the attorneys in our um, portfolio right now, we do have some port you know uh, traditional solo practitioners. Most of them are in the three to five man firm size, and you know we've got some firms that are up to twenty attorneys in them as well. But you're absolutely right. There are attorneys out there. And what's interesting, they want to help. They can do the work, but they have no way for clients to find them. And, you know, this issue of the justice gap comes up. So, you know, my view is by bringing them into the network and letting them do what they do, um, we're able to lower costs and, you know, get better services out there. Now, you cover only civil litigation, right? But most of the stuff that we you know, deal with is, you know, obviously about 40% is a family law, whether that's a divorce, a custody issue, um, with, you know, an adoption, you know, grandparent adoption is, uh, is a huge issue right now. And so we support that a lot. Um, you know, other areas or the probate of, you know, wills and estates, if someone dies without a will, it's got to go to probate. And you may have an estate that's got great assets in it, but in order for the um, heirs to get access, they've got to go through probate. And if they can't afford an attorney, it gets to be a much more convoluted process. Um, it, we do, uh, you know, one of the big things that we've seen um, that was really surprising to me, and is about 25% of our business right now, is on the small business side. Right. Um, and that's uh, from a formation standpoint to you know, a contract standpoint to get, you know, whatever it may be that a small business would need from a review of something to putting together employment agreements for people. Um, we're seeing more and more small businesses utilize our services and then those that are of the attorneys in our network because they view it as a cash flow tool. Um, we actually had two clients who had letters of intent for investment. Um, but they didn't want to shell out the eight to ten thousand dollars up front in order to do the legal work to get the investment to come in. And the attorneys wanted to help, but they didn't want to wait six months to get it done um, or to get paid. And so we come in, we enable the entire process to take place, they get the legal work done, the attorney gets paid, um, they get their investment, and then they pay us off as soon as they get paid. So it's been you know, that area has been very, very interesting. 
Well, there's lots and lots of work, legal work that actually doesn't involve going to court, as I'm sure you know. Contract review, for instance, uh, sending demand letters to deadbeat customers. Uh, <laughs> for reasons I couldn't tell you, a letter from a lawyer carries more weight than a letter from a, a company owner does. Can't tell you why, but it's true. It's, Absolutely. Uh, you know, we don't do any personal injury work. Um, we don't get into any contingency-based litigation. Because if you think about it, in both those cases, you know, the lawyer's already taking the credit risk. They've and, and analyzed they, the case. They, they, they advertise heavily and they have a very clear message. You don't got to pay a dime less we win. And I, you, you can't compete with that business unless you're competing head on doing contingency personal injury work. What we're doing exists at the highest levels in the legal market. So if you had a $100 million case, there are companies would, that would do something similar, but those are in large class action, you know, large you know, personal injury cases. And so I, I like to say that we're sort of democratizing this model um, to the rest of the world. Well, many people have, they're on one side or the other side, or wish they were on one side of a five or 10 or $20,000 lawsuit. And they simply don't know how to proceed. So a lot of that stuff just never gets filed. It just disappears. It's, it's, so, I mean, you're cranky with your car dealer. You're, you're cranky with your car company. You think they sold you a lemon. You've heard about this lemon law, but you don't know anything about it. So it kind of yep. dies there. And there's just tons of this, this potential litigation that doesn't come to pass because of a lack of cash and also a lack of access to attorneys. You know, how do I, I have this lemon car. Who do I talk to? Well, now that personal injury lawyer you recommended me to doesn't do lemon cars. So right. It's an interesting possibility. It's it's. Now I will say, I'm not optimistic about you bumping up against legal Zoom because they spend so much money selling wills and stuff like that. So much TV marketing money. And and I think that you know they provide a great service. And one of the things that's going on here in Texas is the, uh, you know, the limited scope stuff where someone can then go to a legal zoom do their own will um, and then take it to an attorney to just review it and make sure it's right um, you know we're not you know that's not we see a lot of on the estate and will side that people are coming to but it you know it's a different arena um, you know we're not necessarily competing you know and our attorneys aren't competing with the folks that qualify for legal aid either um, it's definitely a, a mid-tier where someone, you know, needs help. And I think to your point, so much goes unaddressed um, that it creates problems. I think, you know, one of the most interesting things I heard when I first started looking at this business model, I was talking to one of these folks who was in the buy here, pay here car world, which I'm not, I don't, I'm not necessarily a supporter of that world, but he had some interesting insights. And what he said was that 30 to 40% of all the cars they sell go to people who don't have driver's licenses. And I wow. said to him, how can someone who doesn't have a driver's license buy a car? And he said, you don't need a driver's license to buy a car. And I said, well, how do they get insurance? He said, oh, there's plenty of places that'll you know, charge them 450 bucks a month on a $50 a month car payment. And he said, the main reason that happens is because somewhere along the line, you know, somebody had a DWI or they had a ticket they didn't know what to do or they didn't address it and it just snowballed from there so they ended up losing their license 
And he said, if they were able to come up with the two to $3,000 to go get everything cleaned up and they got their driver's license back, you know, their insurance would drop to like $30 a month and they'd have net cash in their pocket. But it's that cycle, you know, that you describe of people not being able to get, you know, access for a variety of reasons um, that we're trying to address. Criminal case, you know, you have a right to an attorney, which is why we don't get into a lot of that. Um, we do some light stuff, but, you know, nothing that, you know, if someone qualified and could get, you know, a court-appointed attorney, that, you know, they would go that route for sure. You know, I think some of the statistics are like 60% of, of one of the parties in a divorce case is not represented. Um, if you look at landlord-tenant stuff, I know that in New York, 98% of the time in a landlord-tenant issue, the tenant is not represented. Right. Yeah, and it happens all the time. I mean, the so when you talk to credit unions about this, the, the good news is the, the margin sounds attractive. I mean, you're talking in the vicinity of 10%, which in a world of 4% mortgages, 10% sounds really good. The downside is they've never done this sort of thing before. And credit unions have a, a risk-averse uh, character built into their DNA. And new is a word that they're not necessarily all that crazy about. So how do you how do you get them to embrace the new? I completely agree with you, and I think that the night you know just like any other marketplace, there are um, there is a group of early adopters out there who understand you know that you know from a loan perspective they need to diversify and they need to find more loans. You know they. You know, they're certainly familiar with, a, you know, an unsecured line of credit for people, which is basically what this falls into for them. I think that from the new standpoint, you know, people who are more progressive, and again, you know, they're doing the decisioning on it. So that provides a level of comfort for them. I mean, they don't have to take everyone that comes at all. And so the credit unions we've been talking to understand they have to do something because as you are probably well aware the the auto world is does not have a good prognosis for it from a lending standpoint um you know the the mortgage stuff as you mentioned has lower margins too and so they're trying to be more creative in the ways that they can do stuff so i mean you're absolutely right some we've had you know i've had several credit unions say oh you know this sounds great love to do it i don't want to be the first We've had other uh, credit unions, particularly a couple with, you know, open charters who've said, this sounds fantastic. I love what you're trying to do from a mission standpoint. Let's figure this thing out. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's also a way for the credit union to deepen the relationship with the member, offering a service that you just ain't going to get at the local bank. Oh, absolutely. You know, can you apply for a personal line of credit at the local bank? Sure. But they're not, it's not going to be backed up with a legal network, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's more to this than just the credit line. And right. I mean, you know, you're not going to be able to walk into a bank uh, lobby and, and pick up a brochure that was, you know, done by the league talking about, you know, access to justice and some of the partnerships that are out there and those sorts of things. So, you know, there is a... There is a absolutely a direct component to it because I would love for the MSRs to be empowered if someone walked in and said, hey, you know, also I'm having this issue to be able to say, hey, we don't 
we can't refer you to a particular lawyer, but you know, here's a network and an organization that we work with, and you know, take a look at it. Yeah, I'd, I'd like the idea. People, many people do feel with some justification that they're locked out of the legal system. And this is, this is a way to give them more access in the legal system. But I think by you know, bringing more, more attorneys in and enabling them to help people, um, we can really change some lives. And that's a pretty powerful message from the credit union standpoint um, and why I'm excited about trying to continue to work with them. I do see this as potentially aligning pretty well with credit union mission. Because potentially it's helping people do something good for them that no one else really wants to help them do. And credit unions excel when they don't compete with banks, when they do chart their own course. No, I agree. I mean, I love the space. You know, I've been in it. My first credit union relationship was back at a credit union back here in San Antonio that I was doing all their, you know, computer stuff for in the early 90s. You know, they've been great to me. It's been a great world. It's uh, interesting innovation all around. And I think the best part is, you know, they all share, um, you know, what they found to be successful, which I think at the end of the day helps solutions be more effective um, across the board. And I, I, so many people get squeezed in legal matters and they really just don't know where to proceed. You know, to your point earlier, where people don't know where to turn, Part of my mission is to, you know, empower the credit union so they can be a resource. So when people come in, they know, hey, this credit union can help me, you know, at least get me pointed in the right direction. What's been real interesting to me is that stat I mentioned earlier, where 50% of our clients are ones that came from our website, where they went to the website and matched up with an attorney. It, it just demonstrates to me the need for, you know, those resources, those places where folks can go to, you know, start looking at how to solve these problems. Before we go, think hard about how you can help support this podcast so we can do more interviews with more thoughtful leaders in the credit union world. What we're trying to figure out here in these podcasts is what's next for credit unions. What can they do to really, really, really make a difference in the financial scene? Can't all be mega banks, can it? It's my hope it won't all be mega banks. It'll always be a place for credit unions. That's what we're discussing here. So figure out how you can help. Get in touch with me. This is RJ McGarvey at gmail.com. Robert McGarvey, again, that's RJ McGarvey at gmail.com. Get in touch. We'll figure out a way that you can help. We need your support. We want your support. We thank you for your support. The CU 2.0 Podcast.